0: Welcome to the
1: You Are Not So Smart Podcast, Episode 106.
0: Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, Episode 106.
1: Good morning. Hello. Hello, David. How are you? Just fine, thank you. Thank
0: you. Um, well, thanks for setting some time mm. aside. Yeah. Uh, let me uh, go ahead and get this out of the way. How do I pronounce your name?
1: <laughs> um, per Aspen Stockness, or anywhere else close to that. Do you.
0: <laughs> so if I say so, Per, that's okay.
1: That's what I usually do when I'm in the U.S. Yeah, just okay. call me Pierre. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I'm. Uh,
0: this is an interview I did a while back with. Per Espen Stocknes, he's a psychologist in Norway who wrote a book titled What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming.
1: I'm Per Espen Stocknes, Uh, I'm a Professorship at uh, Norwegian Business School, I teach uh, green economics and uh, also I'm a psychologist in background, Uh, so I also consult within uh, climate communications and uh, written a new book on this topic he put together this strategy for science
0: communicators who find themselves confronted with climate change deniers. And of course he also is trying to help scientists who find themselves in that weird situation where they are dealing with people who don't believe that they are experts on this topic. They don't believe that they actually know what they're talking about. They are denying them. They deny the fact that they have any evidence whatsoever that climate change is real. So he's developed a psychology based strategy for working with people like that. I thought for this episode, I would just present what he had to say when I interviewed him about that strategy and the guidebook he published on it last year.
1: Yeah, this is what I called um, in, in, in this issue uh, the psychological climate paradox. Uh, and um, the paradox is really that since 1989, that's 25 years, 26 years now, um, the amount of scientific facts and the certainty of the science has been growing very strongly. So we have had like five IPCC reports and more than 30,000 new uh, climate science articles published, which all underline the the seriousness of the problem. But if you look at the polls, um, the weird thing happens is that since 1989, um, people's concern for climate change has actually declined. Uh, and um, this psychological climate paradox is particularly prevalent in um, wealthy democracies such as the US, Canada, UK, Norway, Australia, uh, which are both um, uh, like you see themselves as uh, rational, modern, and uh, but also petroleum-based mm-hmm. uh, and economies. So what I've done is to really... Uh, condense the, let's say, the three or 400 articles that have been published within psychology and um, sociology and social anthropology into a set of psychological barriers that create this paradox. So there are psychological barriers, inside us or mechanisms, that come into play when there is uh, uh, shall we say, an uncomfortable um, science message that's coming our way. So
0: you uh, early on in the book, you, you write about how there is a sort of a, a golden rule to psychotherapeutic approaches, and um, you talk about how when we have something that seems like it's been a solution in the past, uh, mm. like a habitual solution, that we can use it so often that it becomes part of the problem, and we end up doubling down our efforts when facing difficult problems instead
1: of trying to about moving to a different course. Could you sort of elaborate on, on that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of quite common, as you say, within coaching and psychotherapy that if you have a problem, you try harder the way you have tried to solve it. But then gradually, what you do is by pushing harder and harder, you're just reinforcing the problem because you're doing something that also contributes to, to the problem. And this has been the case in terms of uh, climate science communications. Because um, there has been this uh, conviction that if only we could get the facts out to people, then they would kind of come to their minds and senses and recognize that this is important or this is serious. Uh, however, having tried that and seen that it hadn't didn't have the intended effect, uh, what has the climate science uh, communicators done? Well, they've doubled their efforts and. a little bit of doom and apocalypse into it if we don't change our ways now we're on our way to a four degree plus or even worse a burning world Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to to, but for them as rational messengers rational scientists they wouldn't say like burning world or toast world no in ipcc report they come up with a incredibly communicative name of rcp (laughs) 8.5 and This is one example, you know, by sticking so hard to your signs that you tend to forget that you're actually uh, trying to reach out to people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it gets the opposite effect of what you intended, which is that people distance themselves from it and are turned off.
0: So, I mean, I... I I see see a lot of these videos. I I remember something that went around on the internet a while back. It was a clip from um, HBO's, the newsroom where they had the climate scientists saying that we're all doomed and everything. And I think that that stuff, I would speculate that that sort of thing is really sort of a dog whistle effect so that like all the people who already are already on your side, they are the ones who watch that kind of stuff and read that kind of stuff and say, look at this. And they share it around on their social networks Mm. But, but among the people who are opposed to this, or deny it, or, or for whatever reason uh, feel like they that this is not a message that they accept, those that just bounces off of them and and becomes evidence for how crazy the other side is, and so, um, and that's, yeah. that's sort of the gist of what I see in a lot of what you talk about in this book. So, what this if this rational strategy, you know, the, our quote unquote rational strategy doesn't work this confrontational thing doesn't work this sort of shoving the facts down people's throats doesn't work why doesn't it work Mm. and and what is the what is a better broader alternative to just saying look at this fact look at this fact
1: exactly um so in a way um when the scientists have been pushing uh facts at people it's been repeating the same experiment over and over and seeing that it has, has the same outcome but not uh, being willing to change how you do it. So the the principle then is we should do something else. We should try something else than just pushing the facts. Mm -hmm. And the reason it doesn't work is that those who are, as you mentioned, ready to take it in, they have already heard. Um, So you could kind of segment the um, population into six main groups, if you will. Uh, some say they are alarmed. And this is about 13% of the population. And they have heard and they have understood. Then there are a a group called the concerned, which are like 31%. They're also quite convinced, but even if they want a more vigorous policy, they're somewhat less involved in the issue. And then you have the rest of the population, which then adds up to typically a little bit more than 50%, who are either cautious, disengaged doubtful or downright uh, dismissive of the whole issue. So, among these other g- groups, um, uh, the, th- uh, the 13%, the uh, the, uh, the, or the 87%, um, quite a few psychological barriers, as I mentioned, uh, are involved in creating this uh, negative impact of from climate science on people's concern. Uh-huh. Uh, I give these names that all start with D just for the kind of yeah, simplicity. Sure. Let's, let's go uh,
0: through these. These are, these are really cool. These, these are the five <laughs> Ds of, uh, of climate. Den- well, the den- uh, not really a denial, no. Uh, denial's in there. The five Ds of, of how would you put it? How would you put it?
1: Yeah. Um, it's the five psychological mechanisms that kind of uphold the psychological um, paradox of mm-hmm. the climate. That we, okay. The more facts we get, the less uh, concern we go. Um, And the first of these is, as I briefly mentioned, distancing, because when we um, hear about climate change, it's typically positioned in the year 2100 Mm -hmm. or 2200, like, you know, you've maybe heard the news that Antarctica is now melting, there's no way it's going to be stopped, and in 200 years, there will be more than a meter of sea level rise. Well, when people hear that, uh, they 2200 did you say that <laughs> and it's so way out distance beyond what people um, care about in their ordinary lives uh, which is like this month or this week uh, that um, the issue importance kind of just goes down compared to the other more pressing stuff we have on our on our to-do lists um, so there's the distance in time and there's also distancing in terms of social um uh, or, or the space where, when typically they've been using a lot of imagery of melting ice and polar bears and uh, flooding in Bangladesh or uh, uh, cyclones in the Pacifica. And all these images are very distant in space from us. So it's happening far in the future and it's happening far away from me. And thirdly, the people who are typically um, uh, suffers the consequences of climate change. They are people I don't really know. They're uh, socially distant from me. I don't know them. I don't know the, uh, even know somebody who knows them. Mm-hmm. And and this uh, social distance, so to speak, creates um, a lowering of concern, particularly if uh, it's said like, uh, you know, uh, one million people were displaced by the storm. But we know that People don't really relate well to statistics such as that. One person is a tragedy, but one million is statistics. Mm -hmm. And um, we have yet another way of distancing ourselves from it, and that is uh, in terms of responsibility. When we hear about um, uh, politicians and negotiators and all these international Uh, COP rounds, like we have another one now in Paris in this December coming up, but we had them before like in Copenhagen, Warsaw, Lima, etc. And what we hear is that people who we don't know uh, stand up and say, we must act now. And then everybody uh, agrees that the only thing they agree on is that they will meet again next year. Right. (laughs) And so it's outside my scope of influence, so to speak. as a psychological concept, I can care and do something about what I have a kind of self-efficacy in the terms of if I do it, it will have an effect. But with these negotiations that are so far removed from me in responsibility, it just creates helplessness and uh, I want to kind of give up feeling. So the first barrier is very important in terms of creating this reduction in the sense of urgency and in the, in the sense of health uh, risk or, and concern. It seems so strange though because,
0: I mean, we have all these, there are all these mechanisms of distance when it comes mm. to this issue, but it seems like, you know, we, everywhere I am, I am being affected by climate. Every, every, like it's a persistent part of our day-to-day lives, yet it's strange that we would find, have, feel a psychological distance from the actual issue. Um, is there is pro is part of that a problem is part of the problem that people sort of conflate weather and climate as being the same thing you think maybe
1: uh, it's an interesting point you mentioned there because people tend to um, get more concerned uh, about global warming when there 's been a hot period, and if there is a cold period then the concern falls and <laughs> this is even statistically reflected in uh, in um, news media and the types of articles that are published. So the number of editorials and the number of articles about climate change, they go way up if there's a heat wave and then when it goes cold, they go way down. Um, (laughs) uh, So this just shows to me how dominant, psychologically speaking, in our attention, what is uh, that the near takes predominance Mm -hmm. of the more distant or the Mm long-term.
0: Okay, let's move on to doom. This is, uh, it it would seem like, on the surface here, it would seem like these messages of doom would get people to act, but uh, you say that it actually ends up backfiring. How does that work?
1: Yeah, well, um, as um, the framing, so to speak, of climate message has been that um, if we continue as today, we'll all, end up in a burning planet, or in hell, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this doom and apocalypse framing um, sets up a state of mind where we are felt somewhat guilty. Uh, There's a certain fear in it. And um, what uh, is quite well known to psychology is that if people feel fear and guilt, then they're not really motivated to get engaged. Rather, they quickly learn uh, what we call avoidance behavior. So on the one hand, we do habituation to it. we heard it so many times before, it seems like it's always the end is nigh, (laughs) Uh, always the the last times. Uh, And then um, uh, if we feel any fear and guilt still after that, we tend to get pacified by it. Uh, We do not get active and want to do something with it. So fear and guilt is good at making people want to avoid the messenger and the message. Uh, and we quickly learn uh, how to filter it out, so that 's the problem with using doom as the main framing for uh, climate message. It backfires very quickly on the on the um, on the issue
0: and now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors ok, I want to tell you about something that really is one of my favorite things in the world. It's called The Great Courses. The Great Courses is a big part of our household. We watch them all the time. We often choose The Great Courses over Netflix or Hulu or YouTube. It's just so great. I love being able to learn about anything that interests me whenever I want. And with The Great Courses Plus, I can do that. I can spend hours watching these fascinating video lectures, learning from award-winning experts about topics that interest me. Like, Logic, psychology, photography, playing chess. I say this all the time, but I really enjoyed one about visualizing mathematics. It just it just changed the way I think forever. And there are more than 8,000 different lectures that will change the way that you think forever because there is always something new to explore. Now, recently, I enjoyed watching The Intelligent Brain. It's a fascinating look into the research behind intelligence. It's all about the validity of IQ testing, what we've learned about the brain through imaging technology and and the latest research into intelligence and and primate brains. I want you to start watching The Great Courses Plus, just like us. They're giving my listeners a fantastic limited-time offer. It's it's about the best thing you could ever get. Listen to this. You get one month for free, and you get 50% off your next three months. You... You have to do this. It's the best thing ever. This generous offer extends your unlimited access for several months as you enjoy their huge library of engaging video lectures. But get this, you must sign up through my URL in the next few weeks. It's thegreatcoursesplus.com smart. You have to get on this right now if you want a free month and 50% off your next three. Remember, that special offer is just for a limited time at thegreatcoursesplus.com com slash smart. That's the com slash smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McRaney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and we're listening to sort of a raw interview with pear Espen Stocknace. We're going to get right back to where we just left off. That's that's interesting. Uh, And I've read there are similar effects when it comes to um, dieting and and exercise. Like people can... um, the well, you you think that messages that say you're going to get fat or messages that you're going to die of heart disease or you're going to even, mm-hmm. to even when it comes to smoking those messages exactly the, it seems like those are going to work on people but really what it does is is it just it creates that situation that you were describing where people will just simply. Find a way to rationalize away what they're wanting to um, what they're wanting to do in the first place because we're very, exactly we're very very good at that. So yes. exactly that,
1: that brings us off to the third barrier, so to speak, which is uh, the dissonance barrier. Mm-hmm. So these are somewhat distinct but also somewhat connected. So if we get through the, di- the distance barrier by saying that the climate change is here and now and uh, making it kind of visible to people, and then um, if we manage to avoid the doom barrier, which is deeply uh, pacifying to people, and then Thirdly, we hit typically the dissonance barrier. And the reason for this is that uh, what we do conflicts with what we know. Mm -hmm. Then this generates a type of uh, uncomfortable feeling inside of us that um, psychology is called the dissonance. Uh, It's really from, like you said, with smoking. If I know that uh, I smoke and I also know that smoking kills or smoking leads to cancer, uh, this generates um, some... Yeah, uncomfortableness, unease, um, some something that's not quite right in terms of my self-image because I like to see myself as a good person. And then, uh, quite a few of uh, creative strategies are typically employed to uh, kind of get rid of this uh, dissonance. Mm-hmm. So we're very, our brains are very creative when it comes to coming coming up with good uh, justifications. So we don't have to really. Um, Bother too much uh, about this dissonance, or we'll really get rid of it. So, for instance, we could say that if I smoke, to do that example first, I can modify one by saying, I really don't smoke that much. Actually, my friend smoked even more than me, so I'm I'll, I'll probably fine. Mm-hmm. I can also change the perceived importance of one of them. I could say, Well, actually, the evidence is quite weak that smoking causes cancer. You know, I have this aunt, she, she smoked, you know, 40 a day, but she's fit as a fiddle. And then I had a my uncle—he actually died of cancer, but he never smoked. So you know it can't be that clear or that uh, strong. So I was telling myself this. I kind of reduce the felt dissonance. And what we're seeing now in climate is that we're we're having this the same type of responses. So if I have like two contradictory um, elements between what i do and what i act uh, of do and what i know such as i have high emissions i live a high energy fossil f- fossil fuel energy intensive life and secondly co2 leads to climate change or climate disruptions well this generates in the same way as we're smoking this dissonance yeah. and then how can i get rid of that well i could use the same strategies as a used in terms of smoking i can say well my emissions are really quite insignificant it's it's there it's the chinese or it's the kuwaitis or it's the um uh, indians that are now you know making all these things they're emitting more than than we are so that helps a little bit and quite that's been used to a certain extent excuse me and then we could also change the importance of one cognition, saying that, well, the evidence is quite weak that CO2 causes warming, really. Uh, I heard from one scientist who says it's the sunspots. And this is an interesting point because um, when people, I mean, there has been a well-funded and well-oiled uh, misinformation campaign Right? with uh, the big oil money paying for, for a lot of these messages that mm-hmm. climate change isn't really happening or it hasn't warmed since the year 1998. And with very little brain power and very, very few facts, they're able to kind of get their message across. And one of the reasons why this is that, is that there may be a, a kind of demand side to uh, this disbelief. So we have a supply and we have a demand side. And the demand side is really generated by this dissonance feeling. Because if I then um, really start to question or doubt the, the evidence, well, it makes my dissonance go away, doesn't it?
0: Right, right.
1: Um, also, I could you know, do more, than thing, more things like this. As you mentioned with dieting uh, or smoking, I can say that actually I've now installed a heat pump or a solar panel on my roof. So my trip to Thailand now doesn't really matter. I've come to that. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean in psychology, we call that strategy for moral licensing because I've done one good thing. I can now do uh, continue as uh, as, uh, as as usual, so to speak. And then, yeah. if this dissonance goes back and forth, uh, you know, I, I try to explain it away, but doesn't really go away, and. It comes back, and then I maybe have a friend who confronts me or here again to read again some news on the science. I can also be tempted to kind of end up with just completely simply denying that the cognitions are related. I can say there is no evidence linking c o two and climate change, and then I would have to add some story to to kind of justify that, and I could say, for instance, that well, this is just uh, the leftist left side now now that Marx is dead. Uh they need another excuse to <laughs> right. make a bigger government or put up the taxes, or this these climate scientists are just screaming because they want to have more uh government funds for their own research. So by making these kind of stories, um I'm able to get let my dissonance go away. And that feels better, mm-hmm. feels good. So this is part of the backlash, uh the part of the reason why that in in um since 1989. When because we haven't had uh, behaviors actions that are consistent with what we know, this creates the the dissonance and then uh, the dissonance is done away by by these sh- simple psychological strategies that you know right. makes us makes us feel better.
0: And then and then your your fifth uh, D is identity, which is sort of and I'm uh, I'm assuming this is more along the lines of you sort of have a social construct of who you are yourself and everything and and then you have this. Uh, network of people that uh, you know. This you, your very, um, your very identity as a human being and your social network could come into threat if you were to flip on this issue. What would other people think, and what, how how would you realign yourself? Is that more in line with
1: what you're thinking? Exactly, because if uh, my sense of self uh, and my lifestyle, my professional self, my, my, that is my job. Uh, Etc. Are threatened by news or facts or some or some messenger, then uh, I, I inevitably encounter resistance to take that in, and I prefer to shoot back at the other to protect myself or my self-esteem. So maybe the simplest example of this is a new uh, trend uh, in the U.S. that I found. You know, cars are typically expressions of ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. the, the brand of car and. How you drive it and you no, know. so if you let's say if you have a, a big SUV with a, a truck with a diesel engine, and then um, there comes this um, enviro guy maybe driving his Prius or uh, electric car, and uh, it comes up into your bumper or maybe or gets a bit too close, and you feel, huh, what is he doing here? Mm-hmm. And um, then uh, this has become a market for this. It's called rolling coal which is a piece of equipment you can install in the engine. Um, so when you hit the button on the dashboard, it injects um, more diesel than the, the motor can do. And suddenly you can uh, make a huge cloud of uh, soot oh and, and carbon and just drown out the, that um, Prius right behind you. <laughs> so, so this product is called the, the Prius Repellent, and it's on sale for about $500.
0: Uh, <laughs> that's, oh, that's
1: amazing. Um, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> so it just shows the extent of um identity protection, how so, that, that works. Yeah.
0: So I'm thinking, okay, so the, the kind of person that might buy that, or people of all stripes that are uh on the side of I don't believe in global warming, I don't believe in human, you know, anthropogenic uh, climate change, people who don't believe that and all that stuff, it seems so weird to me, the people you're you know, that, that are in the throes of all these psychological mechanisms you describe, if you were like let's say you were in a you know you were in in college and you were listening to a scientist talk about volcanoes or a scientist talking about how mosquitoes uh you know the life cycle of a mosquito there's all these there are many different things that people will hear about in the world of science that's that's you know beyond their layperson understanding but when they hear scientists and experts talking to them about that sort of thing, they accept that this person is an expert they accept that they uh, don't really understand this fully, and this person mm-hmm. does, and they they uh, will take that person's advice. Why is it on this issue that people suddenly stop and say, mm, I don't know about that? It seems like a strange thing. To, it seems strange to go, I don't know about all those thousands of experts on this topic. I think I know better than them. Why is this a sticking point for people and other scientific uh, ideas or not?
1: Yeah. Um, the... Um When you hear some expert talking, uh, then we typically want to know a little bit about uh, what's his identity. Is he uh, in my tribe, so to speak, or is he from somewhere else? And studies have been done that show if uh, the expert holds the same values, for instance, religious or um, in terms of uh, uh, politics, then... I tend to trust that expert more mm. even if it, even if it's uh, a, a fake expert uh, so this identity protection this last barrier wants us to kind of cherry pick or select uh, what kind of experts we are willing to listen to when the issue has been politicized and that's what happened with the climate uh, issue since it's been become an identity issue it's now more. You know, it's now more uh, polarizing in Mm -hmm. politics than even um, abortion or or gay rights and and, uh, uh, guns. Uh, So, in this case, when the issue has been politicized, then suddenly we start to screen the values of the expert before we make up our minds. And this is the the way that identity protective cognition actually works. I I prefer to uh, give more weight to maybe one expert who has the same values as me, than a thousand who seem to have opposing values. It's mm-hmm.
0: really strange. You know, you can imagine, I can imagine, it seem I think if, if it, this hadn't happened, it would seem so bizarre because it would seem like strange. Like imagine if like astronomy became politicized and that there would be like that person, <laughs> that person, that person's not in my, that person's in my, in the out group. I'm in this in group. Yeah. I, I don't believe there is a Jupiter. I don't care what you show me. Those are all faked. I mean, that's, it's so amazing that something that is purely empirical that's that and for the most part is just a bunch of numbers and charts and graphs can mm. become uh, infused with these political values and then put people in their camps. It seems so strange and and the idea that it could happen to this scares me because I, I think well maybe it could happen to any scientific principle and, and it has in the past of course and and uh, the fact that it 's happening to this right now is a real for a lot of people it's a real conundrum and you you write um you identify these, your book is fantastic because you identify all five of these things and you, you sort of lay the, the foundation before that, but then you have some real practical advice uh, on what we actually should be doing instead of what we are doing now. Um, exactly. Mm-hmm. We have, um, before we run out of time, let's go into some of what are some things that we can do to counteract these psychological mechanisms.
1: Great, yeah, let's talk about solutions. Um, first, Knowing these barriers help you define your success criteria for better uh, climate communications. So you can kind of flip them over to see whether new types of climate communication actually will be uh, hitting the barrier or can maybe help us move past it, move beyond them. So the first is to make climate issue feel more personal, more near and urgent. That's the distance. You break that one. Uh, You can also do that by making it more social, which I'll come back to. And then the doom barrier have to be bypassed by using framings that do not backfire on the issue through negative feelings. And thirdly, we need to reduce the dissonance by making it easier and simpler for people to do uh, visible and consistent actions. And uh, fourthly, um, we have to ne- uh, start, um, avoid the emotional need for denial, which is, uh, the feeling of being acu- accused and uh, in, in, in guilt. And th- fifthly, we have to reduce the po- cultural and political polarization on the issue by better storytelling that um, embraces values of uh, other segments of the of the population. So, in summary, I've given these new strategies the uh, names starting with S. Just five here, or two. There are um, social. Uh, simple supportive stories and signals
0: mm-hmm.
1: so um, if you want i can just dive into the first one which yeah, is yeah, the yeah. social social network strategy uh, we have to make the climate message more social because as i said um, we, if you only talk about glaciers and arctic ice or polar bears or uh, bangladesh or uh, Island, pacific islands it's Way, way far from me. But if it's something that happens in my network, uh, with something that people that I care about, then suddenly it it feels much more near and more personal and more um, uh, urgent too, because it's, it's here and now in a way. So I have some, a few examples of how this works. Um, some uh, communities are trying to get out of the gloom and starting to do more like parties uh, and get-togethers and having fun together when they do uh, local community issues, such as the sports games. You might have heard of um, the Green Sports Alliance. They do like um, the greening of sports events. And then uh, the sports stars are the people that you look up to, the sports people, they, they get influenced through Uh, peer messengers that are much closer to to themselves Mm -hmm. than a distant climate scientist. But also ordinary neighborhoods such as um, uh, if there is one neighbor who puts up solar panels on his roof, uh, then suddenly the likelihood of the others in the same area goes way up. So you could say initiatives such as rooftop solar is contagious. And people don't do it because of the climate, but because of uh, they see that others are doing it as well. Right. And this was, this came very clearly out of an experiment that was done by um, a professor called Bob Cialdini, uh, who put up um, hundreds of households into four groups. And the first group were told they should uh, conserve power for the sake of uh, sustainability. Uh, it's good for the earth. Uh, and the second group were told they should conserve energy because of their children and their children's children, their, and the future generations. The third group were told they should conserve energy because it's profitable. Uh, you save money by cutting your power bill. And the fourth group were told how much they are using compared to their neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and right, right. Uh, the, the the very clear message was that uh, the most motivational message was the one where I could compare myself to what my neighbors were doing. Mm-hmm. And this is what we call using the power of social networks. And you might have heard of company Opower because they've taken this research and then leveraged it into a business idea. Uh, and so now you can get your power bill, um, uh, on your power bill, you can get your comparison to your efficient neighbors and to right, all neighbors. Right, right. And then if you're doing better than them, you get typically two smiles and great. Uh, or if you're, in the, if you're in the middle, you get a good and a smiley. And if you're below, you don't get any frown because they don't use frowns. <laughs> mm, <right. laughs> you have to be on the positive side. So Cialdini's point is that people just don't want to conserve energy. They want actually to be acknowledged for right. conserving energy. And this little twist is what makes the whole difference in terms of motivation to do something about it. We call this using the power of social norms, because if I believe that other people whom I care about or are in my network do something with it, then I will do, to, do so too. And the opposite, if I believe that nobody's taking action on this, then I won't bother either. Right. And by then, having people see that, for instance, like sports events or solar panel spreading or solar panel clubs or um, making your power consumption visible, either through an app or text messaging or the bill, all these things adds up um, so that um, you shift the baseline, so to speak, of what is considered the social norm or the, the typical ways. If I'm in, If I'm in doubt what to do, Then I will ask, what would other people do in my situation? And then I would typically do what I believe most other people are doing. Mm -hmm. This has to do with the extent to which we humans are social imitators. And that goes way back into our evolutionary psychology. Mm -hmm. We're very good at that.
0: (laughs) And now, a word from our sponsor. I love learning just for the pure pleasure of it, and that's why I'm a big fan of the Great Courses Plus video learning service. They have more than 7,000 engaging video lectures presented by top professors on so many topics, and you can subscribe to the Great Courses Plus to get unlimited access to all of them. Watch all that interests you anytime. Now, I recently watched their popular course, The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, presented by astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And if you loved Cosmos, this is a deeper dive into the heart of some of science's greatest mysteries, including extraterrestrial life, multiple universes, string theory, what it means for life to be intelligent if we then find life and think that maybe it could be intelligent. I love this course because it's about what we don't know about the universe. And for a limited time, you can watch a lecture from the inexplicable universe absolutely free, no strings attached, but you can only get this limited time offer by going to, here it is, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. So watch this free lecture today by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. And now the conclusion of our interview with Per Espen Stocknes. So your next frame is um, about being supportive, about about making sure
1: you employ frames that support your message. Right. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, the Doom frame tends to... Uh, backfire. And another similar frame that uh, has been used by economists is that it's so costly to do something about the climate. So it's very expensive and if you say um, it's not costly you're still activating that framing. So what's emerging our new uh, main uh, fr- supportive frames is first of all the health framing because if you state that climate change is really about the health of people um, hmm cause it otherwise it increases, uh, uh, pollen allergies, uh, asthma's, uh, heat related violence, heat related, uh, uh, heart strokes, uh, more infectious disease, all these kinds of things, mental health problems that are here right now. Uh, then it's like, uh, this aligns with what people consider to be the most important political priorities. Um, Let me explain briefly. If you ask people, uh, the public, what are your most important public priorities or the problems you think politicians should face, should do something about, then what always comes out on top is the economy, health, education, jobs, these kind of issues. And climate gets way down below there to maybe 19 out of 20 or something like that, 14 out of 15. Hmm. But since health always is one of the top issues, uh, by aligning climate with health, you um, use that as a frame to make its um, felt important, go way up. So quite a bit of research has shown that if you frame or talk about climate in health issues, health terms, then um, there's a willingness to support it goes, goes up. And I think Obama has learned or heard this research, too, since now he's going to arrange a climate change and health summit uh, quite soon at the White House. And uh, he's involving the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Murphy, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, Another frame that we know works well is the, the risk or the insurance frame. So rather than discussing just the costs of the investments, we should discuss how much are we willing to pay today to avoid a larger risk in the future? And this is what the insurance industry is all about. And today, we are, for instance, willing to pay in the order of 2 to 3% of our entire GDP in fire and theft insurance. Hmm. But we hardly pay, we pay more or less zero in terms of climate insurance. Uh, and that's the absurdity of it. So if we realize that uh, just as um, uh, defense uh, is also it's a typical this kind of risk issue, we, we pay for uh, having a strong defense in case something happens. We don't be, really believe that America will be invaded or that kind of stuff, but we need uh, a strong defense because we might experience a war again. Right. And in the same way, we could argue that uh, we don't really know that the, that the world is going to burn up, but it is a risk, and... We should insure ourselves, as we do with defense and fire insurance, against that for happening. It's just plain common business sense. It's prudent, and this has been put forward, put forward in a kind of um, a report written by both Republicans and uh, and uh, Democrats together. I'm thinking about Hank Paulson and Tom Steyer, for instance. They went together to make a report called "The Risky Business," and they just spell out the risks to business. Uh, as if we do not um, insure and pay certain climate investments today,
0: to, to me it seems like if there is a if there was a one percent chance that all of this is true when it comes to mm-hmm. um, global warming and climate change then we should probably do something about it. Yet we know that the percentage is way, way higher. So it, it, exactly. that, it feels like that's a really, really good way to to go at it, is saying like, look, the chances, no matter what the chances are, we should do something. You know, we, we make movies yeah. about having asteroid defense systems and things. Yes, like that. So, yeah, yeah,
1: so yeah. This is
0: an actual thing that our scientists have come to us and said, hey, do something mm. about this.
1: Yeah, so uh, that's one frame that's very very important to use. Do not speaking about as uh, expensive, but speaking about as uh, uh, investment uh, in in insurance. Mm-hmm. And but there's is an even better frame as well to kind of get a more uh, less polarization and more um, bipartisanism here, and that is the opportunity frame. Mm-hmm. But and this has to do with um, uh, all the opportunities for that arise with a new energy system, a new city infrastructure, and smart houses and smart uh, cities and uh, maybe smart even roads. Um, I don't know if you heard about the solar roadways idea. Uh, it came up last year and on Indiegogo, a crowdsourcing um, website. And it went really viral because it showed people an opportunity that they liked so much that they put more, they gave away more money into this startup than any other has achieved in the history of crowdsourcing. And what it really does is it says that we could make smart roads by building solar panels into them and then some lead indicators. And you could have uh, roads that are um, generating more energy than they need and at the same time showing... um, if uh, alarm signs on the road if something is happening further down and they can di- redirect traffic and all these opportunities mm-hmm. so what would it really be like to have smart roads and not just dump asphalt roads and people love this concept so it just speaks to the power of opportunity in this area um i'm yeah. sure i'm not saying it's a it's a great uh, economic idea and it will <laughs> be profitable uh, but i'm talking about the psychological aspect how people were fascinated about this right so
0: yeah and so these you know these things can get so complex. You say that it's important one of your b- big principles is this, it is important that we try to make sure that this is um that whatever we're asking people to do is simple and easy and mm. uh, and not a not a a giant sort of uh uh undertaking on part of the individual. Could you sort of elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, sure. If you walk into some kind of store and then you want to do a climate friendly purchase uh and it's just like eighty different brands on the ales, or um, uh, if I want to buy some household appliance, and I wonder which one would be the best in a long-term point of view. It's really hard to to pick the right products. So what we could do is to apply apply some principles from behavioral economics uh, to make it much more simple to do what is right. You know. People make a lot of uh, mindless and uh, destructive choices because that's the way uh, we have the economy set up. But the good news is that we could do a lot of mindless and constructive choices instead. Uh, So we tested out one example that's pretty um, easy to explain is the use of defaults. So let's say for instance that you, um, you put all printers into the default of double-sided printing. Uh, so if you don't specify anything, it comes out double-sided. Mm-hmm. And that would save something like 15 to 20% paper, equivalent to taking 150,000 cars off the road if it was applied to all US offices. Wow. And that's just a digital switch. And also, we did one study in Norway where um, we put life cycle cost on the household appliance. So when you walk into a store, you can immediately see what this will not just cost me today as a sales price, but it will cost me over seven or ten years of use. And suddenly, maybe the washing machine, the air conditioner, or the tumbler dryer that is the cheapest today, you see by with large fonts the, the costs over seven to ten years. So the nudge here is really to redesign the choice architecture or the uh, the, the layout of the label so that the lifecycle cost is printed with large fonts and the, the sales price with somewhat smaller fonts on the same price label. Mm-hmm. And this had the effect that people started buying the more energy-efficient appliances because they were cheaper in the long run. But that, they hadn't just known that before. And suddenly, on average, people were buying 5% more, uh, or they were buying household appliances that would reduce their power consumption by 5%. Uh, and if this was applied to all house, household appliances in the EU, we, we calculated, it would be equivalent to 10 million tons of CO2, or like uh, taking 2 million cars off the road. And this is the effect just by redesigning the, the price label. Mm-hmm.
0: And so uh and another huge aspect of this and this is something that I've seen come up a lot especially um in PR circles is that you really have to attach some sort of narrative to this some sort of yeah if you need to give people the opportunity to understand this in a story format because we seem to really prefer to receive information in that format so what are some uh some ways you've seen that this works when it comes to the issue of uh of climate change global warming and that sort of thing
1: Yeah what I'm liking now is that um uh there's a new um narrative or story emerging among um both consultancies and business leaders on this that has to do with the resource uh, productivity improvements or what some call the resource revolution another called the circular economy because it takes um the story of let's say the 20th century was all brown growth we we grew our economy by cheap uh, fossil fuels but now the the age of cheap fossil fuel is over and we have to um, Accommodate uh, many billions more of um, middle-class consumers on this planet and we tell the story now how this is going to happen through radical resource uh, efficiency so we can do much more with much less and this is a narrative that applies specifically to um, business leaders and people who are focused on uh, opportunities um on the other side, to, to other segments of the population, maybe religious people or uh, people who are um, more engaged by moral issues, uh, there's, there's a new story coming up on uh, the greening of religion. So I don't know if you notice now that the Pope is coming out very strongly right, right, in yeah. favor of it. And uh, so the, the story of stewardship within uh, our society becomes more important than the dominance uh, story, the, d- the domination of nature. Uh, so religions all over the world seem to be reinventing themselves as, uh, as kind of green um, uh, narratives about how, uh, what's the rightful place of humanity uh, on this planet that uh, God created. Um, there's also another narrative that says that this economic growth that we've had for so long doesn't really cut it anymore, people don't get any happier. So what we really need is a description of a society that would make us more, give us a higher quality of life. What's our dream? What's our, what, what's the sort of type of society that we really like to live in? And this, I have a dream type of stories, uh, are very, very important to create a sense of uh, meaning and community uh, and give a deep motivation for moving ahead with, uh, with the climate uh, action. Mm. And it also, it's fundamentally by, uh, not polarizing if you can frame it in these ways.
0: That's fantastic. And so, you're and to pull all that together, you say that the the our last thing we need to do is somehow you know provide feedback to people, give people signals so that they can uh, you know I- employ all this stuff in their lives. What are what are some great ways to do that?
1: Yeah, um, you know, the climate issue has had some key signals that has. To been um, in focus and that is uh, the ppm values of the atmosphere of co2 but you know that's about that's an indicator that people can't relate to uh, like 400 or 410 or 380 what have you Uh, and also they'll be talking about sea level rise in terms of inches per decade or something like that which is impossible for people to see so the whole point is that you need to find indicators and signals that feels relevant to people's responses. Not just signals that say something about the global state of the world, but how are we in our society responding? Are we actually uh, starting to turn the curve the right direction? And we can do this on an individual level, level, uh, or a company level, or a city level, uh, or a national level, but we should stick to the signals that are comparable across these levels. So for instance, Uh, One Norwegian bank are now developing um, uh, a CO2 uh, bank statement that comes along with your ordinary bank statement. So if you go into your internet bank, you can suddenly see the CO2 impacts of your um, purchases, for instance. That would give you a monthly feedback on how your uh, consumption um, plays out in terms of uh, climate emissions. And also you could easily link that with um, ads or stories or examples of how it could be improved. So that would be on the personal level. We could also have a look at what we could do on the commercial or corporate level. And we've developed there an indicator that compares how much um, do you increase your gross profits compared to your um, emissions. Some people call that for carbon intensity. And the whole point is that Previously, industry have heard that uh, the environs and the climate activists are saying, no, we have to stop growth, we have to kill growth. However, the opportunity here is that we can continue economic growth as long as you also reduce your emissions, and that's actually profitable. And further, it gives a clear signal as to what is a real green growth and what is a typical brown growth. So is your company really a part of the solution or is it part of the problem? That becomes perfectly measurable and clear if we follow this uh, carbon intensity per uh, company indicator. Uh, the question that's been driving me all these years is uh, whether humans are, so we say, inevitably short term. Right. And what I found is a very positive conclusion that we're not inevitably short term, but we have to need, we, we need a little bit help of the social conditions around us. So if we have social norms, supportive frames, simple actions, uh, meaningful stories and signals that are perceived as personally relevant, then people will actually act for the long term. Mm-hmm. So it's really up, it's just our culture where we have kind of lost the support. Most other cultures in the history of the earth have had social norms and frames and actions that made it simple for them to, to behave in line with their ecosystems. Uh, and that's just what we have to reestablish in our culture as well.
0: That's fantastic, yeah. that is it for this episode of the you are not so smart podcast to learn more about pear Espen stocknays go to his website it's s-t-o-k-n-e-s.com stocknays.com head to boingboingpodcast.com for more great podcasts like this one go to you are not so smart.com for the show notes and for previous episodes you can also go to itunes and stitcher and soundcloud for all the previous episodes the opening music is "Clash" by Caravan Palace. This music is "Banjo Apocalypse." You can find us on Twitter at notsmartblog. I'm on Twitter at David McRaney. Facebook it's just slash you are not so smart. And as always, you can send your cookie recipes to David at YouAreNotSoSmart.com.